On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood stood six stone water jars, the kind used by, by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the, drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Thank you. Would you give Lydia some love? She always stresses when we get her to do that. The deal was she was meant to be on hosting at the start, but I traded her. I did hosting. She had to do the reading. So, you know, I promised her it was not one that had like weird place names or names. So she's all good. Uh, Key question, right? As we start tonight, where we sit in the series, key question right now is what do you think about Jesus? Like being deadly serious, who is he to you? Where you sit today, who is Jesus to you? And what do his miracles tell you about him? What do his miracles tell you about him? You see, these are questions that we have got to answer when we approach this whole topic of epiphany or or revelation, which is kind of the other way to think of the, the word epiphany is revelation. When we approach this topic, they're key because as we come through the Christmas story and we land in a series that's all about the revelation of Jesus, we've got to engage real life with what he actually means to us. What the Christmas story tells us about him, what the Magi's journey to him tells us about him, what his baptism tells us about him, and today what his miracles tell us about him. You see, I have no desire to lead a church that fudges it or dances around it or suggests that anything else is as important as knowing just who Jesus is and just what he means to us. Like, actually... What does he mean to you? Like Sunday school answers aside, kind of ingrained Christian lingo aside, what does he mean to you? Where you sit today. One person who knew what he thought about Jesus was John, whose gospel that we have just read from today. And John was one of those guys that the older I get, the more I find every single friendship group has, right? Every friendship group has a John, right? What do I mean? Where am I going with this? Right, okay. It's like this thing that I realize people do, predominantly like my parents and my in-laws do, the older they get, right? And every group has somebody like this, right? And what happens is they begin to tell you a story, right? And as they begin to tell you the story, they get to that point where they're like, and, and then they can't think of the name, right? They're telling you about somebody and they'll start to think, you know, what is this person's name? And they'll start to do that thing where they go and they go, and you know Sarah? Yeah, yeah, I know Sarah. Well, you know Sarah's husband? Like, no, no, don't. You know, oh, you know Sarah's husband? Sarah, you know Sarah? She's always wearing the like maroon top. Sarah, right? You know her husband? No, I don't know who you're talking about. And this will like go on and on and on and on and on, right? And they'll keep going. Keep, like the story is like been cast aside while they try to figure out. And then eventually like five minutes or so will pass of them going, oh, come on. You know Sarah? Like, no, I have no. And eventually, Norman. And you're like, 
it really doesn't matter. Was there any point in this? And it's like, no, eventually they land, right? He literally has nothing to do with the story. He was just a detail on the way, the details guy. Every friendship group has a details person, right? It's like my wife. She is single-handedly responsible for ruining car karaoke, right? She, she just wrecks it, right? Because as you're on your way to the North Coast, you have your favorite music on, you're like clean blasting it out, right? You're singing along, you're, you're like really into it. At this point, you may even be singing a harmony, you're that into it, right? Like you're blasting it, and eventually Joy will say, what words are you singing there? And you're like, I actually don't have any idea. And you've realized that the whole way that you've been doing that weird, like, and you've been doing that sort of thing, right? And she's that person that ruins it, right? Especially whenever it's like, I mean, I don't like to admit that I've sung Hakuna Matata in the car, but I have. But like my Swahili or whatever that's in isn't that good, right? And she'll be like, what are you singing there? Like, I don't know. You've ruined it. Because she's into details, right? Details. And some people are details Guys, John is a details guy. But he's not just about details, right? He's different as well. If you've ever read the four Gospels, particularly if you've read them, you know, in something like the Bible in one year, where you kind of run through one and into the next and into the next, right? You would know that they, are, they all have similarities, but equally all of them are distinct. Of course they are. They're written by four different authors. You would expect them to be different. But John's Gospel is like way different from the other three. Unlike the other three, it doesn't contain lots of stuff that they do. It's got no account of Jesus' birth, his baptism, his temptation, nothing of the Last Supper, nothing of Gethsemane, nothing of the Ascension. Those are like pretty big things in the life of Jesus, right? They don't make any appearance in John's Gospel. And even the bits that it does report are often quite different from the other three. John's Gospel was the last one written of all the Gospels. But the interesting thing is that it contains the narrative about the very start of Jesus' ministry. It's the last written, and it contains the most information about the start, which the others don't. He's not only different, though. He's distinct, right? He's interested in those details, right? What do I mean? Well, what I mean is whenever you read the story of, you know, the feeding the 5,000, that story that everybody knows well, it's John's gospel that writes not just about a boy with loaves and fishes, but he's got barley loaves, right? In John 6 and 9, it's barley loaves. It's not just loaves, it's barley loaves. Or when Jesus comes to the disciples as they cross the lake in the storm, they hadn't just rowed a distance, they'd rowed between three and four miles, which is in John 6. And it's only John who tells of the four soldiers gambling for the seamless robe as Jesus died from John chapter 11 and so on and so on and so on. He's into details. Details you would only know if you were there. They're significant because you would only know those sorts of details if you were there. So the first time you ever read John's gospel, it's tempting to think that he's like lazy, right? He doesn't report lots of the other big things, right? He's lazy. He just He wasn't really listening, he wasn't really watching, he didn't see those things, so he doesn't report them. But actually, it's probably the opposite of that. He may well actually have been the closest. They read like the accounts of an eyewitness. And as you read today, right, or as any other day, just from now on, this is a little side, right, but as you read John's Gospel today, and maybe any other day, and you come across those little details, details you so easily skip by, I want you to read them and really think about them now, and you will smile when you read them as little notes or little fingerprints that speak of how Jesus' life had all of John's attention. When you read of little things like 
they didn't just row a distance. They rowed three or four miles. They weren't just loaves. They were barley loaves. There were four soldiers and they were arguing and gambling over a seamless rope. Read them as they are. And so it is with what we read today, right? The first recorded miracle that Jesus performs. And this is how the, so- the story starts. Lydia just read it. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. And so the scene for Jesus' first miracle is a wedding, right? The scene of the first miracle is a wedding. And I love this because as Rick was, or as Michael was unpacking the other week, it's the sheer humanity of Jesus' life that sets him apart in so many ways. We were remarking last week that we worship a God who wore sandals, right? He wore, yeah, like real life sandals. I don't wear sandals. Jesus did, right? That's incredible, right? We worship a God who wore sandals. And this week we find Jesus, the Son of God, the one whose mission was to the whole world and who only, as it turns out, had three years to do it and he's at a wedding, right? He's at a wedding. And I love that Jesus had time for the social setting. I love that Jesus had time for kind of important cultural things of his day. But that's maybe not where you picture the Son of God, right? At a wedding. Probably in sandals, right? You probably don't picture that, do you? I mean, the internet was awash this past week with pictures of Donald Trump behind like a table of 400 Big Macs, right? Did you see that? Like the world went mad because you don't expect to see the President of the United States in front of a table of 400 burgers, right? That's not very like presidential. You just don't expect to see that. And so would you expect to find the Son of God at a wedding? I don't know if I would. But yet that's where he is. The hope of the nations at a wedding with his mother. And there's been this huge faux pas in the story, right? They've run out of wine. Now weddings in Jesus' day were a huge deal, right? They were a massive, massive thing. Bigger than they are today, if you can imagine that to be true, right? They were a huge deal. They were often a week-long event. They were set in a culture of really close communities and a really high bar for hospitality, right? Like intensely high bar. Like the sort of bar that when a stranger walked into a town, the expectation was that somebody brought that stranger in and they stayed in your house until they needed to go, right? High levels of hospitality and they've just run out of wine. That's a big deal. I mean, just listen to what William Barclay says about weddings of the day. A newly married couple did not go away for their honeymoon. They stayed at home and for a week they kept open house. They wore crowns and they dressed in their bridal robes. They were treated like a king and queen, were actually addressed as king and queen and their word was law. Right? It sounds like some horrible, horrible sort of like birthday week and my super sweet 16 rolled into one, doesn't it? Right? Like it's intense, okay? If the photos, you know, all of the photos from those weddings were with the like hashtag queen like thing on Instagram, right? That's what was happening. It's intense, right? They were huge events. And so to run out of wine was incredibly problematic. It would have been hugely shameful in a culture of hospitality and honor. You have shamed us by running out of wine. And Jesus' mother, who it appears could have been involved in some way of the organizing of this wedding, how do we know? Because she notices first, you know, she says to Jesus, they've run out of wine. We have to assume that she knew more was going on. Perhaps she was just incredibly observant, but we have to imagine that she had some sort of position at this wedding in some way. Uh, She talks to Jesus, you know, what are we going to do? Now, it's not likely at this point that she had an expectation that he would work a miracle. After all, this was his first. 
He didn't have a track record of miracles at this point as far as we know. It's likely she just wanted him to help. You see, Joseph, his father, was almost certainly dead by this point because he doesn't appear in any of the biblical literature uh, around this time. So it's almost certain that Joseph had already died. And so Mary had lent on Jesus all of these years. And so she was here. They've run out of wine. Jesus, you do something about it. Help us. And yet, whenever we read it, you know, straight away, Jesus pushes back. Whether woman means something, you know, like we would hear in Northern Irish, you would hear people say, woman, dear, right? You know, that's kind of maybe one interpretation. Uh, or whether it's more of a respectful tone, like lady. There's, there's kind of discussion about that at the theology level as to what that was. But either way, he pushes back at his mom. Because Jesus knows that when he begins to do miracles, the clock is set for the eventual destiny of his life, which is the cross. And that's what that means whenever you read that. My time has not yet come. Why do you involve me? What that means is once he starts, he's beginning the ministry, and the ministry eventually leads to the cross. And yet it starts today, this day. And what is it all about? And what does it tell us about the Jesus who is our epiphany? I'm going to suggest two things today that this passage is speaking to us as we try to grasp a revelation of what Jesus means. And those two things are really simple. They're signs and they're faith. This passage means signs and faith. One of my best friends moved out of home for the first time. And um, this was a glorious time for him, as it is for everyone. The first time you move out of, the, out of your house and you're like, yeah, it's just like basking on the sofa eating microchips, right? Because um, you know you're never allowed to buy those. And then you, like, you move out and all you've got is a microwave. You don't know how to cook. And you're like, I'm eating microchips, right? Um, so that's kind of life, right? And uh, if you're like me and him, you know, you will find yourself as a millennial male today. Put yourself in my shoes, which means you're ace at a number of things, right? Such as finding Belfast's newest Thai fusion restaurant, being very good at Call of Duty, or finding the perfect filter for your next Instagram photo. However, you're rubbish at some other things, mostly DIY. I've said this lots of times, right? Rubbish, okay? If you're millennial and you're a male, you're probably rubbish at DIY. And he was, right? And he's in his house and the power goes out, okay? Now, him being the way he is, he thinks, well, you know, I'll kind of take a look and see what's going on. So he finds the fuse box. He looks, he finds, you know, one of the fuses has tripped. He removes the fuse from the box. Now, this is already pretty advanced stuff for my friend, okay? So he removes the fuse. He can see that the fuse has been blown. At which point he sees the gap that the fuse was in and thinks, that looks about the equivalent size of a folded piece of tinfoil. And he proceeds to fold a piece of tinfoil and tuck it into the fuse. Put the fuse back in the fuse box, flip the thing on and hit power on. And the power comes on and he's like, aha, I have arrived. I'm a grown up, right? All was well, but not for long. The first sign was that awful metallic-y smell. You know that burning metal-y sort of smell? His house starts to smell profusely of like metallic-y burningness. At which point then he starts to detect smoke. And the final kind of nail in the coffin was the whole fuse box went on fire, right? All was not well. They were all signs that something wasn't wired correctly. Something wasn't right. In verse 11, John writes, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. It was a sign. The miracle was a sign. 
Now, in the other Gospels, a different word is used whenever Jesus performs what we would term a miracle, right? That word is dynamis, right? Which means power, okay? So when he performs a miracle, the kind of translated word is power. But in John's Gospel, the word is semea for signs. He, he, he performs signs. And if there are signs, and John, as we know, is a details guy, so he doesn't just do that just to be different or just because he's got different lingo. He does it for a reason, right? If there's signs... Signs have got to be pointing to something, don't they? So what are the signs pointing to? That's the question today. If they're signs, what do they point to? Well, you see, these were signs of a new reality that was breaking in. What was happening here was it was a sign, sure, but what to? It was pointing to a new reality that was breaking in. The signs represented this intersection with heaven and earth. We know Jesus talks about the kingdom lots and lots and lots and lots, right? And and we just came through uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, a number of months ago, and we talked about the kingdom quite a bit through that series because Jesus talks about the kingdom quite a bit. 54 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, he talks about the kingdom. It's a big deal. And the whole point about the kingdom is it is the range of God's effective will. It is the ushering in of God's will. And so when Jesus is performing these signs, they represent these kind of intersections between where heaven, where that kingdom is breaking into earth. These moments were times when heaven and earth collided and the glory of God was on show. And this time, it was at a wedding, right? And weddings usually happened in a home. And so it just so happens that the glory of God was on show in someone's home. How incredible is that? And what I love about John's gospel is that in a Christian world where we work so hard to over-spiritualize everything, right? Christian lingo, Christian practices that we all kind of fall into and nobody really knows why we do them, but we do them, right? Exaggerating and pumping things up very often. John just makes no attempt to over-spiritualize things. He just doesn't do it. And this is so important, right? Because we have this tendency to over-spiritualize things. It's almost as if the gospel is only concerned with spiritual and emotional aspects of our lives, isn't it? It's almost as if the gospel is like a head, kind of heart thing that goes on, and it's got nothing in the kind of real world of the touch kind of things, real kind of stuff that is in front of you. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel is a decision that you make in your heart, right? You shouldn't expect it to change the reality in front of you. It's not concerned with the realities of the world, and yet this couldn't be further from the truth. The disciples lived in a different reality. They were following Jesus. They were watching the power of the gospel, not just change inward truths and hurts and beliefs, but watching it cause the lame to walk and the blind to see. You know, a person died on the street this week in Belfast. A homeless person died on the street. And it's the power of the gospel, not just to save that man's soul, but actually to change his whole world. To change physical hurts, to change, to change his whole world, his whole reality. That's the power of the gospel. It's not just the power to say, oh, you believe something or you don't. It changes everything. Leslie Newbigin said this, the gospel is the manifestation of the sovereign rule of God in the life of the world. That's what it does. And I love that John writes in a way that's so full of detail and it's so matter of fact. These are the records of of divine power after all, right? They're not just signs. They're actually records of divine power breaking into the world. And we need to hold them like that. Not just as something to kind of brush 
away. I found myself speaking at something recently and um, I came home from it and it was like in the evening and came back into the house and Joy said, oh, you know, how did it go? And, and I kind of just like off the cuff, didn't even think about it. It was like, yeah, yeah, it went fine. Some woman gave me a prophetic word, da 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 and just like brushed it off. I didn't even like consider for a second that somebody had approached me having heard from God and spoke that to me. And yet I was just like, ah, some prophetic word, whatever. Didn't even like think about it, right? Because that's the temptation to do it, isn't it? To run it down, to brush it aside, to kind of term it as like an ethereal, airy-fairy thing that's not really real, it doesn't affect our real world, our everyday. And yet that couldn't be further from the truth. These are the moments, these are the signs of another reality. And they've got God's signature written all over them. So how do they happen, right? Because the real question is, you know, God's performing signs. Jesus is doing things that are a sign of the inbreaking of the life of heaven into the world. How do they happen? Well, here it is. Verse 5, right? Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Really simply, there are just two things that are needed for signs to occur. One is Jesus, and two is somebody willing to do what he tells them. For signs to occur, there's only two things that are necessary. One is Jesus. And two is somebody that's willing to do what he tells them. Week after week, we stand up here. People send us in our little like ministry group text. People send us kind of prophetic words or pictures. Or people get up at the front and they say, you know, I think God has said this for somebody else, right? And week after week, because at this point, none of them have been for me, right? You sit and you're like, oh, no, well, whatever. You know, somebody, yeah, okay. You know, and you can sit there and feel like that about prophetic words when they come, right? You're like, well, that's a bit general. Someone's got a broken heart. We've all got a broken heart. You know, whatever it is, right? You can kind of feel like that when prophetic words come. It's so easy to be like, oh, it's nothing. Brush it aside. Don't think about it, right? And yet week after week after week, those prophetic words are read out and slowly but surely some people will bravely make their way to ministry corner. Somebody will pray for them. And week after week, I'll get the text from Linda when we're in the car on the way home and she'll say, oh, by the way, Dave, every single one of those words this week was for somebody. And every single person got, you know, responded and said, yeah, yeah, that was me. Even if there's five, six, seven words, all of them feel random to the person that they're not for. For the people that they're for, they feel incredibly precise. And for the people that they're for, they feel like little moments where heaven and earth intersects, don't they? As if where I sit today, in the middle of whatever I'm going through, stress, work, relationships, whatever, God could speak to me. God had something to say for me today and he chose to speak it through somebody else. There's signs. And all it takes for signs to be present in the world is Jesus and somebody who's willing to do what he tells them. Secondly, right, and finally tonight, they're not just signs, they're about faith. What's happening here in the first miracle is not just about signs, it's also about faith. These are the words of verses 6 to 11. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that they had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is the first miracle. But what's really happening here, right? Well, the first thing is in verse 6, we read about the jars. While we're at it, there's a little John detail, right? There weren't just stone water jars. There were six of them, okay? Only somebody that's there knows there's six stone water jars. And these are significant, okay? Because inside those jars are where Jesus turns the water into wine, right? But he could have done it anywhere, couldn't he? I mean, they could have poured the water into glasses and then, bang, you know, it had changed into wine the second it had poured into glasses. But he doesn't. He does it in the jars. Why does he do that? He does it because it turns out that Jesus was more interested in saving people from shame than religious ritual. What do I mean? Well, Jewish culture at the time was completely dominated by a a set of religious practices, right? They had them for everything, like everything in life had sort of ritual and practice about it, okay? And in this case, those jars were there because they were used for ceremonial hand washing, all right? They were in sight because they were used regularly, okay? They had to do like a certain practice. They were stoned because stone was less prone to contamination. That's why they weren't kind of porcelain or anything like that. Stone doesn't get contaminated. And they were close because the rituals dictated that their hands had to be washed between every single course or they were considered unclean, right? So they had to do it between every course. Not only did they have to wash their hands, they had a set way to do it, okay? They had to hold their hands up like that and the water ran from their tips over their wrists and then they had to hold them down and they went the other way. The water went from their wrists off their fingers and then they mashed their knuckles into the the middle of the palms of their hands to make sure that the palms of their hands were clean. It was all a ritual, right? They had a very specific set of practices that that water was for. That's what the water was for. It was an important part of their ritual religious life. But Jesus would rather save the bride and groom, the whole bridal party, from shame than observe an ancient practice. And in turning not just any water, but that water, you know, he could have turned any amount of water into wine. He chose that water. It's Jesus' way of saying that he was doing away with the old order of law and custom and ritual and replacing it with something so much better. A time of grace and the gift of God poured out for us instead of law and ritual and religious practice. Where our worth and our cleanliness isn't defined by law and custom and ritual but it's defined by Jesus and what he does. That's why he chose those pots. You know, there's an ancient rabbinic phrase of that time that said without wine there is no joy. Some of you are going, Amen, right? <laughs> You didn't hear that from me. Anyway, it, but it's not just like the ramblings of some like alcoholic cleric, right? That's not what that is. It points, it points towards kind of the significance of something like wine in a time and in a culture where people didn't have lots of money, okay? Wine, in an agricultural culture as well, wine was a huge deal. It's a huge deal. But that's the wine that changes ritual for joy. Jesus is saying, I'm doing away with all that stuff, I'm replacing it with wine. And without wine, there is no joy. I mean, every pot contains something like 30 gallons, right? And as far as I'm aware, there's no wedding party on earth that could consume 180 gallons of wine, right? That is the truth, right? Factually speaking, I mean, they couldn't have consumed 180 gallons of wine. And that's the whole point. It's Jesus' way of communicating that there's no need on earth that could exhaust the grace of Christ. There's so much wine. 
And without wine, there is no joy. And there's nothing you could do that could exhaust all of the wine, all of the joy that is available to you. There's no shame too great or pain too far or anything in your life that could be too much for the amount of wine, the amount of joy that he has for you. There's always enough. It turns out that Jesus is more interested in saving from shame than religious ritual. And he still is. But this sign was about more than just the pots, right? You see, John was a Jew recording the life of Jesus for a church that was now majoritively speaking Gentile. He wrote his last, and by the time he wrote his gospel, the church had kind of started to rule in the world. And, and as that had happened, it had mainly happened by reaching Gentiles, okay? The Jewish people had reached the Gentile world. And both cultures had narratives here that Jesus was unpicking, right? Because that's what Jesus does so often. That's what Paul does as well when he speaks. He unpicks narratives that are in culture. He doesn't just say things that are obtuse. He says things that confronts narratives that were in culture. And that's what he's doing here, right? Because for a Jewish culture that was obsessed with a cleanliness that no amount of ritual or cleaning could ever achieve, Jesus' way was about the imperfections being made perfect and a grace without limit that was more sufficient for any and every need. And for a Greek culture that had its own wine stories, right? This was not the only wine story of the time. In fact, Greek culture actually had a god of wine, right? I mean, I don't even know what that means, but they had a god of wine. He was called Dionysos, right? The god of wine. And there was legends about him providing wine out of nothing as well. There was like a well-known legend of the time of somebody that placed pots in like a cave and then they came back sometime later and Dionysos, the god of wine, had filled the pots with wine and, you know, a whole party was made jolly by this wine that he had provided, right? They had their own wine stories. One Bible commentator wrote this. So the Greeks too had their stories like this. And it is as if John said to them, you have your stories and your legends about your gods, but they are only stories. And you know that they're really not true. But Jesus has come to do what you have always dreamed that your gods could do. He's come to make the things that you long for come true. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting narratives that are in the culture. For a Jewish culture that was all about cleanliness, he's saying none of that matters It's the wine that I provide that matters. And to a Greek culture and a Gentile culture, this was about a God who really truly was all that they dreamed of. And what was the result? Verse 11, as it reads, and his disciples believed in him. The result was faith. It was faith. But it wasn't just the disciples who displayed faith that day. It was Mary too. Mary has a kind of starring, supporting rule in this parable, right? Because when we're reading Jesus push back at his mother in verse 4 and verse 5, it feels harsh, right? Like when Lydia was reading it, Jimmy and I looked at each other and everyone went, woman, and you're like, whoa, like that, that feels harsh, right? The first time you read it. But these were the moments where Jesus was beginning to step out in the ministry that Mary knew his life was for. These were the moments. Like this is it. We're reading an eyewitness account of the first moments that Jesus you know, begins to be the Jesus who has a ministry on the earth. And I can't imagine how painful that would have been for her. I mean, these were the same hands that she would have picked up and washed off when he was a toddler. Picked stones out of like kind of scathed hands, right? Same mouth that she taught to speak words. She was the mother who raised him and treasured him as every mother does. 
And right now she's watching him step into the ministry that she knows that he was for. This is the first miracle after all. And letting him do it would have been hard. It would have felt like an almost letting go kind of thing, right? Whenever he says like, why are you involving me in this? And then he steps into the ministry that he's for. And when Jesus gives that cryptic, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. She would have been confused. As any mother probably would. And yet what does she do next? She tells the servants to do what he says. He pushes back. And then he says, why do you involve me? And it would have been easy for her to say, like, well, I don't know what he's on about, or to become upset, or to become offended, or to you know, push back at Jesus and get into a row. But she doesn't do that. The very next thing she does, she tells the servants to do what he says. You see, Mary had this sort of faith that could trust even when she didn't understand. She didn't know what Jesus was going to do, but she was quite sure that he would do what he was meant for. Faith. And that was the sort of faith that Mary showed, the sort of faith that we're called to, the sort of faith that chooses to trust even when we don't understand, even in the dark, even in the uncertainty of our days and political turmoil and financial woes and relationship trouble and doubts and frustrations that might not know what Jesus will do but trusts him to do what only he can do. And the reason faith is important is because it's only through the eyes of faith that we actually see, that we truly see, right? The reality of that day was that lots of people had seen the sign, right? Lots of people had seen it. The servants who knew that they filled the pots with water only to see wine come out. A bride and a groom, no doubt, beginning to feel dread at the shame that was sure to come. A master of the banquet who knew that the wine had run out. They had all seen the sign. But the glory of God displayed through Jesus was only seen by a few. They'd all seen the sign. But only a few believed. Mary and the disciples saw it and the faith they held so tight to was what saw the glory behind the sign and what caused them to put their faith in Jesus. You know, sometimes it's easy to see the signs and not believe. I don't know about you, but I've probably found myself more often than not seeing signs, hearing incredible things that Jesus is doing in in my world through other people. And it's so easy, so easy to turn immediately into, oh, whatever, you know, begin to unpick it, begin to say, well, did that really happen? You know, you begin to doubt, you don't believe. It's easy to see the signs and not see the glory behind the signs. And how much is that us? How many times in our lives have we known signs? Maybe even been someone who has been on the receiving end of words and pictures and prophecy and healing. Moments of the inbreaking of God and yet all we've seen is the sign. And we haven't had the faith to see the one that they point to. I mean, think about it for a moment, right? This was a moment in Jesus' life where just reading the story, you'd think it it was easy to find faith and see God's glory, right? I mean, just looking at this, you're like, well, if I'd been there that day, seeing water turned into wine, I would have been like, Jesus, right? You might think that that would have been how you respond, right? But it took faith too. What do I mean? I mean because the ultimate glory, the ultimate display of glory in Jesus' life was the cross. And it would have looked anything but glorious. The cross was the time when it took all the faith in the world to see the glory that was right before your eyes. The first miracle was about signs. 
And there were signs of a new reality that Jesus came to usher in. They were breaking in. There were moments where that new reality on earth kind of intersected. There were moments where it was there, where, where heaven and earth collided. Signs that point to something, someone greater. And also it was about faith. Faith in a grace that was greater than rituals or law. Faith that sees things as they truly are. You know, just as we uh, kind of wrap up today and and move into to worship as we finish, you know. One of the things that struck me this week as I was reading about this miracle was all of the miracles of Jesus. And the thing that struck me was this, right? Just about every time you read about Jesus performing a miracle or a sign in the Bible, right? He doesn't just pull something out of nowhere, right? Jesus isn't kind of in the nature of pulling a rabbit out of a hat. That's not what he does. He doesn't tend to do miracles like that. Nearly all of Jesus' miracles are about restoring and renewing something that's broken. It's the pattern of his life, right? Blind eyes see, lame walk, a few small loaves and fishes feed 5,000, water turns into wine. There's something there, right? He changes something into something. He doesn't just make something out of nothing, right? That's mostly the narratives of his miracles. He tends to restore. He tends to renew. He turns, tends to make new something that he holds. The signs in Jesus' life that pointed beyond the signs to a new reality that only he could carry and invite us into has always been about restoring and renewing broken things because that's who he is and that's the revelation. When he performed signs, they just spoke of who he is and who is he? He's the one who makes broken things new. He's the one who from creation to re-creation is about the renewal and the restoration of all things. It's not about rabbits out of a hat. It's about making broken things new. And that's what the signs say. The question is, do you believe it today? And who is he to you? Who is he to you? What are those miracles saying to you today where you said, what do signs and faith have to do with you and your life where you find yourself right now? Because if we're going to do a series on epiphany, we've got to get real about what that epiphany is, right? Whether you come away from this and you just think, oh, Jesus was a nice person. Wasn't he nice? He made wine for all those people who wanted to drink at a wedding, right? Or whether you come back and you say, oh my goodness, who could do such a thing? Or whether you come away from it and you see the signs and you begin to sort of think back in times in your life or moments right now where you're looking past the sign to the God who is behind it. And you're beginning to say, Jesus, give me the faith. Give me the faith to be someone who sees beyond the signs into the wonder of who you are and what you're doing in this world. The God who makes broken things new.